More than half of all companies globally are family-owned or operated. Family businesses contribute 70% of the world's GDP and account for 65% of jobs. Their voices are important. Their stories must be told. Brought to you by the award-winning publication, Tharavat Magazine. This is the Family Business Voice with your host, Ramya Elagami. Rooted, the story of the Forest City Tree Protection Company. After learning the art of tree care as a college student in the early 20th century, a young W.P. Lanfear traveled around the northeastern United States working on such prestigious projects as the Vanderbilt and Roosevelt Estates. Moved to start his own business, he founded the Forest City Tree Protection Company in 1910. A long-standing position as the city forester for the city of Cleveland Heights sustained the business through the Great Depression. As it grew, Forest City Tree earned a sterling reputation throughout Ohio and beyond. The Lanfear's love for trees runs in the family. Lauren Lanfear represents the third generation of arborists in the family, continuing a tradition of urban forest stewardship that began over a hundred years ago. Enjoy this episode with Lauren. All right, Lauren, well, much anticipated meeting between us, but if you wouldn't mind, like, I think where we would love to start is just a little bit more about, you know, the history of your family business, really, because it's not every day that you, first of all, find a family business in this kind of industry. And secondly, you guys are already in the third generation. What an achievement. And we just wanted to first understand uh, a little bit more about the origins of the business and understand where where this sprang from. Well, I'm I'm ready anytime you want to pepper me. Yeah, okay, all right. So, I mean, if you wouldn't mind in your own words, can you tell us a little bit more about your beginnings? Sure. Um, Way back in the 1870s, my great-great-grandfather was essentially a circuit rider. He was a minister, John Wesley Lanfear. And he was, at the time, in Warren, Ohio. And a family by the name of Davy had come over from England And they settled in the Warren area before they had their own home. They were put up at the minister's home, which was my great-great-grandfather. Lo and behold, their son, who had come with them, John Davey, got a job at the Standing Rock Cemetery in Kent. And he he began doing tree work, which eventually became the Davey Tree Company. Then we move forward to 1901, a couple generations down. My grandfather's a student at Case Western Reserve University or Western Reserve University. And John Davey had occasion to uh, stay overnight at the house. He had run into my grandpa's dad. He asked my grandfather, you know, what are you doing this summer? Like most college students still, he, he replied, I'm looking for a job. And Mr. Davey said, well, I happen to have a contract to trim trees on Euclid Avenue uh, up in the Heights area and out in Gates Mills. So my grandfather had a summer job doing that. Eventually, uh, after he graduated, he um, continued then working for Mr. Davey. And they had contracts up along the Hudson River Valley. And he went up to Terrytown, New York, because the uh, Vanderbilts and, and the Roosevelts, there were a lot of big estates, plenty of work to do. Eventually, around 1910, he wanted my grandfather to move there. My grandfather was pretty firmly rooted in Cleveland, so he decided it was time to start his own company, and he tapped as its name Forest City Tree Protection because Cleveland was known as the Forest City. 
Mm-hmm. One of the reasons being that it was one of the first cities back in the 1850s where the mayor, uh, Leonard Case, actually started a city tree planting and tree care program. There, my grandfather was off and running with his own business. And shortly thereafter, what really I think kept him going in 1914, he became him and his company became the city foresters for the city of Cleveland Heights. We remained the city arborist until 1968 when uh, that city founded its own tree department. But it's one of the reasons that he could survive the depression because he still had uh, work to do from from the city and uh, always have had a lot of small clients. So it's a very rich, rich history. Unbelievable, like how these things get started. But then I think also what's remarkable in your case is how it's lasted into the third generation. So your father, I'm assuming, took over? My grandfather had two sons, my father, Bill, my uncle, John. They both studied at Western Reserve University, both finishing. My uncle was about two years older, but they both finished school around 1938. And upon graduation, then became fully involved in the business. And it was in the 50s when the company incorporated and my uncle and my father became officers of this company. Then my father basically managed most of what we would call our uh, uh, services, the pruning and the insect and disease control and the tree nutrition types of things. And then in uh, 79, I graduated from uh, Hiram College and began full-time with the company. My two brothers and several of my cousins had worked off and on for the business. I probably had worked less during junior high and high school than my brothers had, but they went on to other things. And when I was finished with high school, I wanted to take a year off before I went to college. My parents, thank goodness, were very understanding of that. And part of what I did that year trying to figure out what I wanted to do was I worked with my dad, but I found out what I really liked was not only working outside on trees, but the business part and working with people. That's when I decided that one of the things I wanted to focus on in college was botany. And it sort of coincided with a time when my father was ready to relinquish some duties. He wasn't quite sure yet that I was serious enough about it. (laughs) But um, in 1983, then, he was comfortable enough that he officially retired. Uh, my mother had was doing the bookkeeping. She didn't retire till 1988. So I would say that's really when my dad retired because my mother was available to do <laughs> stuff with him. Of course. We all lived on the same property as the business. So he was always around, which was a great sense of support for me. I think, first of all, can you just explain to us a little bit? Because I don't think many people know what it is an arborist actually does. What does your day-to-day work look like? Sure. Many people, when I'm introduced to someone and they say, well, this guy's a tree guy, um, (laughs) they immediately think of Paul Bunyan and you take down trees. And yes, we do take down trees, but I consider myself an arborist. Really, the best way to describe that is a tree doctor in that our focus in our company is to really preserve and protect trees Mm-hmm. And that would be what's considered arboriculture, is the mm-hmm. field of caring for trees. So a typical client of mine would be a homeowner that has one to maybe 10 or more mature trees on their property. And perhaps one of them has died, so they do need one removed, but they're hoping they don't lose other trees. So they would like to know, well, can you remove this tree, but can you tell me what killed it? 
will it hurt other trees? Are there trees that are unsafe? Mm-hmm. We have a storm and my neighbor lost a tree. I don't want to lose a tree. Are there things that we can do to do that, which we can through pruning and through some support mechanisms? And then insect and disease control really gets into the tree health thing. So ash trees are susceptible to an insect called the emerald ash borer. Mm-hmm. If they get an infestation, for the most part, you're going to lose that tree. Mm-hmm. But we do have the technology now where we can actually inject essentially a tree care medicine into the tree, which then kills any emerald ash borer larvae that attempt to establish in the tree, and they preserve their beautiful ash tree. And what's neat is we're not putting anything out into the environment. It's all contained within the tree. We have similar techniques to protect oaks from oak wilt disease. Elms, which a lot of people think we don't have American elms anymore, we take care of probably over 100 big, beautiful elm trees, injecting them every three years with a fungicide that prevents the disease from taking hold. And then there's the whole area of tree nutrition, which fertilization is part of that. The best way to look at it is that you and I know that if we eat a healthy diet, we're going to be healthier. If you don't pay attention to your diet, you'll have problems. Well, if trees aren't getting the proper oxygen, water, and then elements that they need to grow, they suffer. Mm -hmm. And if the soil is compacted, maybe because of construction or is roots are damaged because someone puts in a patio and cuts off roots, various things that could happen, then the tree's ability to get the things it needs in its leaves to make food through photosynthesis, it doesn't get in the tree's decline. So we can do a variety of things Sometimes it's just fertilization, putting some uh, nutrients in the soil. Even that has changed over time, where now when we put things in the soil, we can use slow-release materials that um, adhere to soil particles so they're not getting into the groundwater and and moving out of the system like some agricultural-grade fertilizers do. But we also can put things in the soil to help rejuvenate the natural biology of the soil, uh, bacteria that are beneficial to trees, mm-hmm. uh, specific beneficial fungi, uh, vitamin B. These are things that in a natural wooded setting would normally be there. When we get in a landscape and we put in driveways and we park on the lawn and we run around on the lawn and we put grass over the roots of the trees, the biology of the soil changes and we yeah. can try to help recover that and then the trees grow like they're supposed to. So that's really what in, covers arboriculture is very much like things that a doctor would do. I mean, what a wonderful profession, to be honest. I just like, I feel like uh, it must be, uh, it must be hugely satisfying to do this every day. Well, it is. I mean, one of the things that's really neat being the third generation is to see trees that people say, well, you know, your grandfather planted this tree in 1932. <laughs> and Many of our clients are former employees that worked summers, like my grandfather did for John Davies. So we'll go to a client and they said, you know, I worked for your dad and grandpa in the 50s. And now they're on to other successful things, but they have very fond memories. And then one of the projects that's a good example of how I can feel good about something, when we moved from our business in 2014 to a different location, the property had been sold to our county library system. There was a huge American elm been my favorite tree, probably planted by my grandfather, I suspect. Originally, the tree would have been removed. We helped them understand how important this was to the beauty of the landscape, but also, you know, what it would add to their library and also does environmental things. So 
we helped them understand how much area of the root system they needed to preserve. And now we donate um, fertilization, we donate watering, and we donate this injection I talked about every three years so that this elm is sort of our legacy that we've left there. We're gone to a new location, but this big tree will be there for generations in the future. That tree wouldn't be there if it hadn't been for our efforts. I think one of the reasons, honestly, Lauren, why we were so attracted was that you know, the tree itself, like the symbolism, the very strong symbolism attached to trees, right? Like when you talk about family businesses, is this whole idea of the family tree and sort of it grows. And as you said, it ages over generations and it becomes stronger, hopefully. I was just wondering, did you ever talk to your father about like, you know, how the importance of trees in people's lives have changed over this time that you guys have been in existence? Well, I think that one of the things my father's always talked about was people are never going to lose their interest and love of trees. When they see something killing their tree or damaging it, they're always going to be concerned. The thing that'll change is how we do it. We may not know today what it is that we'll be doing or how we'll do it, but the demand to do it is what will push the research to come up with the ways to do things. And that's Mm -hmm. really held true. I mean, it was, the EPA was founded around 1970, I think. And here we are 50 years later, almost, and we're still taking care of elm trees. No, we're not spraying DDT anymore because that's not a good thing to do. Now, when it was done, it was considered, you know, this thing that saved all these soldiers during World War II. Well, then we learn more about it. No, we're not doing that anymore. Now we have Mm -hmm. a system for injecting things in the trees. So because people still love their elm trees, people have, uh, you know, they've planted a tree in honor of their child that was born or their child that died, or they planted it with their grandfather and now their grandfather's gone, but they have the tree to remember them. So there's a personal attachment to trees that's very unique. I've been involved when we were in South Euclid on the tree commission, we did some plantings at the Veterans Memorial where we worked with a nursery called Famous and Historic Trees. So to honor veterans from the Revolutionary War, we planted what's called a Liberty Elm Mm -hmm. because it was grown from an elm which was called the Liberty Elm because it it had importance to where people met during the Revolutionary War. Mm -hmm. Um, For the Civil War, we planted what is called a, a Gettysburg Sycamore, and it has taken cuttings from a sycamore tree that grew along one of the fence lines in Gettysburg, where Abraham Lincoln walked to give the Gettysburg Address. We just replaced a tree that had died, but we just planted what we call a Jesse Owens Olympic oak tree. In 1936, Jesse Owens went to compete in the Olympics, which were in Berlin. He got a lot of flack, as did some of his other African-American teammates, saying, you, sh- you shouldn't go. In fact, I have a copy of a letter from the NAACP that wrote him saying, please don't go. You know, you're, you're supporting Hitler who thinks, you know, African-Americans are, are not equal. And what Jesse Owens said, well, when I win my gold medals, I'm going to disprove <laughs> that. The Germans gave every gold medal winner in the 36 Olympics a uh, English oak sapling. Well, Jesse hey. Owens came home with four of them. But the only one of these four that we still know exists is the one at James Ford Rhodes High School. Mm-hmm. We've donated care for that tree so that it continues to be a symbol. This is one of the last living legacies. And I have some tremendous pictures with Jesse Owens sitting there with these four planters of oak trees and this big smile on his mm-hmm. face. I mean, that's just something that 
a lot of jobs, you, you don't have that association with something in your work, which you can go home and, and feel that you really have made a contribution that will live on well beyond you. So you hear a lot of meaning, a lot of purpose comes out of your work. And I was just wondering while you were talking, how much of that feeling of purpose and that feeling of legacy do you tie back to the fact that it's a family business? No, I think absolutely. One of the things that was unique was that the house my dad grew up in, my grandfather's house, sat on the east side of our four acres of property. The house my grandfather built that my father lived in and I grew up in sits on the west side of that property and the business sat in between them. So for the first, well, basically 58 years of my life, I lived in one of those two houses other than for two years during college. Hmm. And so one thing I took for granted was I knew exactly what my father did for a living because I could come home from school for lunch, run up and go in my dad's office and spring break. And in the summer, he would take us off on jobs and I would see what they were doing, get to help. I even found my birth announcement where my parents had shared my birth with their friends. And it was written on a paper that looked like a memo from my dad saying, welcoming the newest junior tree climber to our family. And it had the rest of the family listed and they all sort of had job positions, arborist, tree climber things. And I was the, the newest one. So um, when I got married, my wife's father had worked as an electrical engineer for a defense contractor, she really didn't know much about what her dad, she couldn't go in his office. Mm -hmm. And it was like, to me, it was like, you, you've never been in your dad's office. I didn't realize there were people like that. Yeah, of course. So because of that, I saw trees as a kid. I still have good memories of my grandfather and him talking about things that he had. And because of, I guess, our archives have been able to read some letters and, and old stories and look through things over time that definitely I have an attachment to the importance of trees because it was such a family thing. And so maybe ask about the next generation. Is there high hopes for more next gens getting involved in the business? Or? Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm the end of the line. My two kids, I'm proud that they both worked for me summers. My son, nine summers, I think. My daughter, several. And now they're in fields that they love, both related, I guess, to the IT world, but um, both of them learned experiences working for me that have helped them. My daughter in particular, she learned what it's like to be a female in a workplace dominated by men. Yeah. And she would go out to do a job and the customer would be questioning her and she would tell me, she says, I think the only reason they're asking me that question is because I'm a girl. And I would tell her, I said, you know, you're probably absolutely right. And yeah. it won't be the last time that happens. Mm. But she was uh, very self-assured. And um, my son, his first job that he had right away, he was saying, I'm doing this stuff, but it seems like if we did it a different way, it would be better for the company. Mm-hmm. So he understood a business aspect of it that a lot of people in his field aren't even interested in. And I think it, it's why it helped him get to the point where he manages other people now. And I felt good when he told me when he started there, he says, well, I think you have a better training program for your new, new employees than they have here. I still don't know what I'm <laughs> supposed to be doing. That's great feedback. So no, there won't, there won't yeah. be another generation, but it's it may very well be likely that maybe the company gets um, purchased eventually by one of several companies that have family traditions. So would I have loved to have had another Landfear person do it? Yes, but I always was grateful that my father never, I never felt any pressure to go into this business. Yeah. 
I went into it because I found it's what I wanted to do. And in fact, my father wanted to make sure I really believed that before he really felt comfortable giving over some responsibilities. That was a wonderful thing to go into something, but not like I felt like I always had to do this. Well, I mean, I think that's great. And to be honest, as you said, I think it's those stories in childhood that matter a lot when you grow older, especially, and when you get over the first ideas of what a career looks like, I think as well. And and, and you come back to, to where you belong very often. But anyways, we'll check in with you in a couple of years and see where you are. <laughs> and um, I, I agree with that. I mean, I know that that's, uh, sir, I'm open to any possibility. So, but it's like, if that happens, it happens. Yeah, I, but I think you're taking a, a lovely stance on this. And to be honest, like that's also, I, I believe, the best way to, to do it, as your father did, right? Like, because you happily joined without the feeling that you were letting anyone down if you didn't. And yep. uh, I think that's that makes for a very motivated owner management sort of like atmosphere. Last question, Lauren, I promise, because I know there are a lot of trees to save and, and we need to let the doctor go. But um we're obviously like everyone I think today in this world is extremely, extremely worried about disastrous consequences of decades of abuse of our environment. As an arborist and as someone who, you know, also part of a legacy business, what is your stance here? Like, what's your greatest concern? Well, the one thing that's really neat about being an arborist is there's nobody that questions the scientific facts about what trees contribute to our environment, the mm-hmm. fact that they actually produce oxygen. If it wasn't for green plants, we wouldn't have anything to breathe. Mm-hmm. They actually are, are great. Their root systems are great filters of water. So storm water that instead of going into a sewer system, goes down to the ground into a root system of a tree is a much better way of handling that. Trees can filter a lot of the things out that we don't want in the water the leaves and things can filter out pollutants. But the thing that as an arborist that I would say I'm concerned about is that these positive benefits of trees happen when trees get mature enough to have a reasonably large canopy of green leaves. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of excitement about tree planting programs. Arbor Day, everybody wants to plant a tree. Uh, When I see developments happening where they'll cut down a big stand of trees. They'll talk about, well, we cut down you know, trees, but we planted 100 new trees there. Mm-hmm. Well, until a tree matures, its first seven to 10 years of life, it's a taker, a user from the environment. It really right. doesn't benefit until after that. How often do you see a big, beautiful tree in a parking lot? I mean, they mm-hmm. plant something in a little teeny island in poor soil or you know, tree lawn trees. And so one of the things that we've tried to help clients and the public understand is that one of the best things you could do on Arbor Day is take care of a mature tree, whether it means you're watering it, you get someone to look at it to see if it needs to be fertilized, protected from disease. If you say, ah, that ash tree died from emerald ash borer, trees live, trees die. But if you lose a hundred foot tree with maybe a hundred foot wide branch spread, that tree is providing a lot of benefit. Yeah. And then if you say, well, I took it down, but I planted this two-inch diameter tree that's five foot tall, it'll be 100 years before it's doing the same thing. The city of Cleveland was known as the forest city. Um, at one time, they know that I think back in the early 1900s or so, it had a 39% canopy cover. You could look over and see how much of the city was actually green. 
Now that's gotten down to like 12%. Oh, gosh. So there's really a big push now within the city to replace trees, but they need to make sure they're not losing more of these mature trees. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that frustrates me when I I see people talking about how we did so much great things for the environment here because we planted 100 trees. And that to me is, is sad. The way I look at it is arguing about is there climate change? Are we responsible or not? Those are stupid arguments. We know what things are good for the environment, so let's do those. We know trees give oxygen, and we know things that are bad for the environment. So whether or not, what's the impact of those, and are we really causing something? We know we can do things that are better. Why not do them? If we know trees are good, take care of them. If we know these things pollute the water and pollute the air, we need to not do them because we've got to breathe the air and drink the water, as do the trees. Well, we hope that the the message reaches even more people, and I and I appreciate the uh, the simplicity of what you said as well. Is like you know we know what's right really, and it's not that hard to do it. So we hope that people on the precipice of disaster will change their ways and sort of like uh, be more enlightened about this, and that we we might generate a whole new generation of arborists and people who are like uh, passionate about about what you do. Um, I think one more question, if you don't mind. Today, when it comes to this sort of like mix of technology and uh, research that you need to use to have a state-of-the-art business such as yours, like what does that mix look like? And like how heavily do you have to invest in technology and how do you sort of integrate it in the day-to-day of the business? Well, one great story, and I think is somewhat unique to our industry, the professional uh, organization that I belong to and was president of, the International Society of Arboriculture, began back in 1924. There were some early arborist companies up in the Northeast. Bartlett was one of them. And they had sort of discovered that there were people working at universities that were doing research on trees, Mm -hmm. but tended to be more for forestry purposes or horticultural purposes like orchards. And that there was a disconnect. A lot of arborists didn't know that there's actually scientific material that would help us do our work. And on the other hand, there were scientists and professors who didn't know there were arborists, so they weren't necessarily trying to find answers to the things arborists needed to know. Mm -hmm. And so it's really changed. And now with communication technology, just as an arborist, I can give an example that in my term as an officer for this organization, I traveled to chapters all over the world on behalf of the organization. And uh, so now I have arborists, practicing arborists and, and scientists around the world that are uh, colleagues of mine. Mm-hmm. And I've, on more than one occasion, had an issue that came up here, and I'll take a picture of something and send it to a friend in the Czech Republic who I know has worked particularly on decay fungi. And I take a picture of something and say, you know, is this good or bad? What does it do? Mm-hmm. And he can help me with that. On the other hand, he came here and learned about the tree injection, which we were doing, which was not a technology that they were using over there. They had sort of, uh, I want to say, written it off in a lot of ways. They considered it something that was hurting trees. And then they saw that we were saving trees with it. And it's like, we need to do more with that. And Mm -hmm. so now one of his employees is actually going to come visit me next spring to spend a couple of weeks with us to learn what we're doing with that injection technology. 
I have the ability to send an email to someone in Singapore or Sweden, England. There's a lot of people in Europe that have worked with historic trees because mm-hmm. they've got trees that are far more historic than ours mm-hmm. because they've been around longer. And we've learned some things. And we certainly learned a lot from you today, Lauren. Thank you so much. Um, I mean, I had no idea about your world and here I am a huge fan of what you do really. Thank you so much for taking the time well, it- talking to us. I really appreciate that uh, you had the interest. It's great to be able to tell the story. Thank you for listening to the Family Business Voice. Subscribe to our channels now on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher or Spotify to be notified of our weekly episodes. 